There are no identity requirements for you to find favor with God. Favor with God comes to you through faith in Jesus. Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Katsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today we hear part two of a message from Dr. Nick called Boasting in Weakness. Now, Pastor, we hear from Paul in this section of Scripture really what could be considered obstacles to faith in a way. Now, what kinds of things do you encounter in your ministry life are things that keep people from Jesus? I think there are a lot of identity-related issues that people look at themselves and they say, I can't possibly be a Christian. I can't possibly follow Jesus because I come from this family or because I'm from this ethnic background or because I'm not from the right neighborhood. And those are identity pieces where people say, this is incompatible with Christianity and therefore there's a barrier for me to come to Christ. And I think secondly, there are a lot of people that probably feel like they can't serve the Lord Jesus because of some of the things that they've done in the past or because of some of their areas of shortcoming. I don't have enough education or I'm not smart enough or I've done terrible things and God can't use me because of the sins that I've committed in the past and on down the line. And in both of those instances, they're both pieces of identity that people perceive to be barriers and they're rooted in our weaknesses sometimes. And the whole point of this text today is that in the midst of our weakness, we display the strength of God. And so the invitation is for each and every person to come to the Lord Jesus in faith and see what God does in his power in you and through you. Let's turn now to part two of Pastor Nick's message, Boasting in Weakness. Each person, each person in this room needs to engage God and respond to God's offer for salvation on their own to respond to God in faith in the Lord Jesus. Each person can be restored to God individually. And then those individuals create an incredible family identity. Conversely, some people might look at aspects of their identity and they say, I can't be a Christian and enjoy the favor of God in my life or in eternity because I'm not from the right family or I'm not the right nationality or I don't have the right education. I can't tell you how many times I've heard expressions like this. I'm an Arab. We're Muslims. Or I'm from an Irish or Italian or South American family. And so obviously we're all Catholics and we're not Protestant Christians. Or I'm not smart enough to get into all this Bible reading stuff that you Christians seem to really care about. And so I don't know if I'm smart enough to be a Christian at all or My identity as a person is wrapped up so much in all the bad things that I've done in the past or the bad things my family has done. And the list goes on. But you need to know if that's you, 
you need to know that God accepts sinners of all kinds. And he does so from all places and all ethnicities and all kinds of families and backgrounds. And we see the story of the Bible is replete with example after example of this. Think way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Joshua chapter two. There was a woman who was residing in a city who was not a Jew. She was a Gentile and she was not just a Gentile, but she was a prostitute. And she was not just a prostitute. She ran a house of prostitutes. And when she came to encounter God and she saw of his magnificence and his mercy She followed him and this resulted in her not only being used to save some of his servants, but eventually to become a God follower among his people and become the great, great grandmother of the greatest Israelite king in the Old Testament, King David. Her name was Rahab. Think in the New Testament, many examples of Jews and Gentiles of slaves and free, (laughs) of fornicators and murderers, and upstanding citizens, people from the right families and the wrong families, putting their faith in Jesus. One such example is that of the Ethiopian eunuch, an African government official who was castrated, that's what it means to be a eunuch, as a vow of loyalty. And in Acts chapter 8, he's reading the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah, and he puts his faith in Jesus and is baptized. And you see this in the book of Revelation. You see a picture of the heavenly throne room of eternity. And in this picture, you see that God has saved all kinds of sinners to himself. In fact, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says, After this I looked, this is the vision of John, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And so you see, there are no identity requirements for you to find favor with God. Favor with God comes to you through faith in Jesus. And that faith ultimately changes your identity. And so Paul continues. He has set up the fact that he's on the playing field of boasting. He shows them that if anyone is able to boast in his identity, it's him. And then you would expect him to continue this boast moving from his identity to his accomplishments, you would most likely expect him to simply crush his opponents in this argument by listing all the things that he's done. And the argument would be over really quickly. He could say to them, I've planted all of these different churches and I've seen all of these different converts responding to my messages and I've overseen a tremendous number of baptisms and I've been to a number of different places and I've spoken to a number of different dignitaries and I've spoken to a variety of different types of people and even think about all the money that I've raised all for the sake of the gospel. 
All of those things would have made a really good boast. And he would have crushed his opponents and the arguments would have been over. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he shows the foolishness of boasting by boasting about the opposite things that you would expect. He doesn't boast about his accomplishments. He boasts about his suffering. The very thing that shows that he is actually really weak. His persecution. The very thing that shows that he can't control the situations that he's in. He boasts about the things that display that he cannot persuasively change the minds of those who are in authority that he can't accomplish anything in his life according to his own skills, abilities, ethnic, religious, or covenantal identity. He boasts about all the bad stuff, and he does so in this list. And so let's just consider it very quickly as to what he's boasting about. The first boast you see in verse 24 is that he has received the 40 lashes minus one, a total of five Times. This is a punishment that Jews executed upon Jews in the synagogue or the temple. 39 lashes with a whip that was often embedded with bone or rock. The reason why they did 39 is because somewhere back there, they decided that 40 was probably the number that was going to kill a man. And so they wanted to bring up right up to the edge of death. Paul received that lashing Five times, a total of 195 lashes. None of them are mentioned in scripture, so we can assume they were probably early in his ministry, but he kept preaching the gospel anyway. And as a result, he would receive 39 more and he preached the gospel anyway and he would receive 39 more and he preached the gospel anyway and he would receive 39 again. For most of us, our biggest obstacle to sharing the gospel is that we're afraid of what people might think or say about us. There's nothing in comparison to 195 lashings. Second boast is that he was beaten with rods three times, verse 25. Whereas the 39 lashes were the punishment of the Jewish authorities, the rod was the punishment of the Roman authorities. Stripped naked, beaten at the hands of the Gentile authorities. Why? Because of the uprising that the gospel caused in their midst. The third boast is that Paul was stoned, verse 25. Acts 14, 19 tells us of that stoning. And we see the people of Lystra who left him for dead because they believed that he was blaspheming God by proclaiming that Jesus was indeed God's son. The fourth boast is that Paul was shipwrecked three times. Verse 25, Acts 27 records one of those three. But beyond that, we know that the disasters at sea were a fairly common occurrence in the ancient world. So common, in fact, that most people would rather take the long way around (laughs) on land. But... Paul was driven with a purpose to spread this good news of God's grace in his missionary journeys. And on one such occasion, it says that it left him at sea, floating in the water for an entire day and an entire night until he was rescued. The fifth boast is described as a variety of specific dangers. 
Verse 26 and 27, danger from rivers and robbers and his own people and from Gentiles, danger in the city and in the wilderness and at sea, danger from false brothers, people who bear the name Christian, but live in opposition to it. Sleepless nights of hunger and thirst and cold and exposure. And the sixth boast is the worst. We know it's the worst because it's positioned last. He talks about the pressure and anxiety that he has over all of the churches. Verse 28. Because Paul had a pastor's heart and the spiritual well-being of all the people in all of the churches that he planted weighed heavily upon him. It was the weight of souls. He knew that following Jesus would be hard. He knew that there would be false teachers that would come into the midst of those churches and try to devour them like wolves. When he prayed for them and visited them and wrote them, and when the Christians in those churches struggled, he emotionally suffered. And when they succeeded, he had great, great joy because there is nothing like the weight of somebody's soul that rests upon you. And if you have never felt that weight, I would encourage you, just start praying for one of your friends or neighbors that doesn't know the Lord and talking to them about the things of God and see how God impresses that weight and severity upon you. And so there you have it. Lashing, beating, stoning, shipwreck, dangers, and pressure from churches. This is not the list of success. These are not the things that you put on the resume if you're trying to garner favor to get a job. And these are not, certainly not the things that you would share with someone else if you were trying to convey to them that they should follow you because in following you like you follow Christ, you will experience the tremendous favor of God in your life. When people look upon a guy like Paul and all of this stuff, if they think about it in terms of their worldly well-being, they say, no thanks, (laughs) I'll pass. No wonder Paul says in Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Suffering for Jesus was part of the job description for this apostle. And so why would he list all of these terrible things in an excessively foolish boast? Why would he brag about all the wrong things? He's doing so to make a point. (laughs) And the point is found in verses 30 through 33. Look at it with me. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Arteris was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped. The principle is clear, the story after it less so. 
If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. And the implied second half of that is because those things display the strength of the Lord himself. How could any of these things happen? How could all of these churches be planted? How could lives be saved? How could the gospel be proclaimed with someone who is this pathetic? Only because of the strength of God. And the ending after that is sort of peculiar. This little story about being lowered down through a window. How does the principle of boasting in our weakness that shows the strength of the Lord relate to that little story at the end? Well, the key to understanding it is to understand Paul and his context with this city of Damascus. It was the city Damascus that Paul was headed toward as a Pharisee on a mission to kill the Christians. <laughs> Paul, in all of his strength and all of his own might, leveraged all that he had and who he was in his ethnic identity to stand against the gospel of Jesus and to kill those who stood with him. However, when Jesus met him on that road to Damascus, He overwhelmed him with his being. He displayed grace and mercy upon him and he called him to follow him with his life. And Paul was converted. The chief of sinners, the one who was diametrically opposed to the things of Christ, was now called to follow him. And eventually he continued to that city, Damascus. But instead of entering in strength and reputation, and leaving in power, he now entered in a humble boldness and was forced to leave the city in the only way a criminal would leave, by sneaking away in a basket through a window. He came in humility and he left in weakness. And so from the very beginning, this servant of Jesus knew That weakness, our weakness, his weakness, shows the strength of the Lord. Here's the thing. We're starting to see this theme resound now over the last number of weeks, and it's a theme that's worth continuing to lean into because everyone is tempted to think of themselves more highly than they ought, at least at one time or another, and more often with some frequency. (laughs) But our frailty, our shortcomings, our sin struggles, our lack of control, they all point to one thing. (laughs) They all point to the fact that our weakness actually displays God's strength. And so what do you do when God does something incredible in your life and your first instinct is to step back and say, I got it under control. (laughs) You take a moment and you remember your weakness and you point to God's strength. What do you think when God uses you to do something like share the gospel in somebody's life and he saves that friend that you have been praying for for 10 years. And then that little thought creeps into the back of your mind that says, wow, I'm sure glad that I was so faithful over the last 10 years for the sake of this person. 
What do you think? You remember the strength of God that is the thing is able to save people. And what do you do when you're chastised for being a Christian because your friends or your family look at your life and they say, certainly not you. You cannot be a follower of God and experience any of his favor because I went to high school with you and I know the things that we used to do together. You say, isn't it amazing that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our weakness shows the strength of the Lord. And there are a lot of stories that we could share about this that illustrate this point. And we'll talk a little bit more about what this practically looks like next week. But let me just close this morning with one story of a guy who was not of the right pedigree (laughs) and God's strength was displayed in him. His name was Ramon Piagwe. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He was a Sequoia Indian born and raised in the rainforest of Ecuador. He did not have the right pedigree. He wasn't trained at any of the great art institutes of the world. But this man from the jungle won the Windsor and Newton Millennium Art Competition, which at the time was the largest painting competition in the world. His painting entitled Eternal Amazon was selected from over 22,000 entries by professionals and amateur artists from 51 nations and was on display at the United Nations in New York City. Ramon, who started drawing as a teenager nearly 50 years ago, was not introduced to oil painting until 1993 in Quito, Ecuador. The young man who had captured the attention of the art world was first encouraged in his efforts by Orville and Mary Johnson, Wycliffe Bible translators working in his village. The Johnsons recognized a God-given ability and had encouraged him to keep drawing. And when they ended up leaving his village in the early 1970s, having completed their translation of the New Testament, the belongings they took with them included 30 drawings by Ramon. But since then, Ramon has become world famous. He's met the Prince of Wales and the Secretary General of the United Nations. An eternal Amazon has been viewed by ambassadors, artists, dignitaries, and members of the press and public from all around the world. Ramon is quick to give credit to the Lord for the acclaim he has received. He says, I can't take pride of the gift that I have as an artist, for it is God that has given me this talent, and I want to use it for his glory. And when the elderly missionary couple heard about the exhibit at the United Nations, they decided to go to New York and surprise this South American artist. And they entered the exhibition hall and they found Ramon surrounded by a slew of very important people. And as he looked beyond his admiring fans, he saw the Johnsons and he began to cry. 
and they hugged and they wept, surrounded by dignitaries of the world. And Ramon repeated over and over to Orville and Mary, you are the ones that should be honored, not me. For you came to give us the gospel. And I believe that that is why I can now be here. A man was not from the right country. He was not from the right family. He was certainly not from the right art institutions. And yet, God did incredible things in him and through him. Our weakness shows the strength of the Lord. Remember it in your life and rely on that kind of strength even this week in the days ahead. Well, that concludes today's message from Dr. Nick Gatsky. And I want to bring him in because, you know, sometimes when people learn something new, there's always vocabulary we have to pick up. You can't just assume if someone learns a new trade or learns something new in school that they know all the words, right? So I think Christianity is the same way, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And that points us to our resource this month, which is called 18 Words. You know, words have meaning. The way that we communicate the things about ourselves have deep meaning to them. And the way that God communicates about himself has deep meaning. And so 18 Words for the Christian Life is encouraging, it's instructive, And I would commend it to anybody. And you can get this resource that'll help you understand words like reconciliation, justification, regeneration, holiness and sanctification, all those things covered in 18 words by J.I. Packer, which could be yours with your gift this month to A Better Word. Get your gift in today at abetterword.org. That's abetterword.org. And we'll send you this resource. Again, 18 words from J.I. Packer. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.